0: Before the episode, I want to tell you really quickly that we are running an audience survey to learn more about our audience and look for feedback on improving the show. The last one we did was September 2021, and the show has just about doubled since then. So it's a good chance for us to get more feedback and learn how our audience has changed since then. It's really quick. It's a Google form. It only takes two minutes. There's a link in the description for this episode, and I really hope you can fill it out because it's really, really helpful for us to get feedback on the podcast and how to improve. And it's... Kind of interesting. There's not really a great natural way for you as a podcast listener to give us feedback with an email newsletter. You can hit reply or find the author and reach out that way, which you can do on the podcast. But there's not any real personal information that you're telling iTunes or Spotify or whatever podcast platform you're listening on about you. No one is asking you for your LinkedIn or your job role or what have you. And so surveys are the best way we have to learn more about our audience as a podcast. So real quickly, it's only two minutes. It's a Google form. Should be in the description. I really appreciate you sharing your feedback and helping us improve the show. Thank you. And now onto the episode. This episode is the second in our CEO series with early career search CEOs and their companies. Today I'm joined by Adam Ilowite and Michael Upex, CEO and President of Axero Solutions, respectively. Axero is a digital workplace platform for internal communication, collaboration, and knowledge sharing that was acquired by Adam and Michael in July 2021. We discussed the timing on making changes in the business, creating a budget from scratch, talent planning, managing an incredibly steep learning curve, among various other operations topics. Enjoy. When it comes to accounting, quality of earnings reports and financial due diligence, it's vital to have a partner who understands your business and what you're trying to accomplish. Jerry Joe and his team at Hood & Strong in San Francisco have a specialty for search funds and lower middle market private equity, with multiple podcast guests today trusting them with their partnership. Email Jerry at jzhou at hoodstrong.com and visit their search fund landing page at hoodstrong.com to learn more. For advice and observations on accounting for small businesses, here is Jerry himself to share his expertise on today's Q&A. Should a buyer get a quality of earnings report even if the books are pretty clean and straightforward? The answer to that is yes. The way we think about whether the books are clean
1: or messy would be whether the exercise, the financial due diligence is going to be a lot more straightforward or not. And... If we think about the ultimate objective of what we're trying to accomplish doing this financial due diligence, the buyer wants to be able to do the due diligence on a company and making sure everything from a financial statement standpoint that's presented to the buyer checks out is what the buyer expected. So conditions and quality of the books only allows the buyer to get a, a somewhat of a comfort coming in and be able to make decisions going through the process, hopefully in a lot more um speedier manner to go to closing. but it doesn't give the buyer the um the answer questions as to are there transactions that are that happen that are not properly recorded the basically what we kind of think of in terms of unknown liabilities. only can you go through that process to be able to uncover things that are not there. The key question to ask is really what we're trying to answer during this process is not so much what's on the books, but it's the contrary, is what exactly that's not on the books that really should be on the books. And as we go through and understand the business, things will get uncovered. So having a clean set of books is a great starting point. It's promising, just as the business is making money is profitable, it's a promising to get you where you are uh, from a buyer standpoint. But it's still a, a very much necessary uh, process to go through to make sure it is
2: what you expected.
0: Excellent. Thanks, Jerry. To learn more about Hood and Strong, please reach out to Jerry directly at jzhou at hoodstrong.com and visit their search fund landing page at hoodstrong.com for more information. I also want to thank our other show sponsors, Oakborne Advisors, Ravix Group, and Oberly Risk Strategies for supporting the show. And now to the episode. I think starting off it'd be helpful to you know hear a background on the business that you both acquired and what your search was like and maybe the first couple of months in the business. I'd love to hear all about that.
3: Cool. Well I can start and talk a little bit about um, I guess maybe the search and you know how how we how we found Xero. I mean, so Adam and I we launched our search in April twenty twenty and we did a, a search for about fourteen months and acquired Xero at the end of June twenty twenty one. During that search time we I guess reached out to maybe Two and a half thousand companies, talked to about 300 or so, made about 40 or 50 offers and then ultimately signed two LOIs of which one of them was Xero. We found Xero through Propriety Mean where we were reaching out to the folks within the enterprise collaboration space, project management and so forth. You know, just good secular trends coming out of COVID thinking there's more work was going to be done online and ultimately identified Xero through through our, our reach. And the two founders were already on another venture that they had that they started in, in a different space. So I think they were open to, to an exit. And ultimately, we did the transaction and stepped into the roles. As we stepped in, we sort of divided up the kingdom, Adam and I, and Adam focused more externally on sales and marketing and more me more inwardly focused on client success, product development, finance, and so forth. And yeah, first couple of months were you know, very, very intense, very busy. I think it was you know, just a lot of drinking from the fire hose, learning about the business, learning about the customers, learning about the product, learning about the teams, and start trying to identify some early opportunities where we can have an impact and, and, and see how we execute on the plan that we had set out in the sim.
2: I mean, I, we did a traditional funded search. I think the only thing that was maybe a little bit different, although I think more common now is we didn't start. Fresh out of business school, both Michael and I had worked for about three years after business school. Michael in investment banking, and, and me in consulting. And I think those years, those those skills that we learned there, ended up being a very helpful during our search, and then b have really translated well to what we each focus on at Exera. So I think a lot of those skills ended up being more translatable to you know, running a small business than then maybe I, I would have realized uh, when we were making those decisions.
0: Yeah, any particular skill from consulting or investment banking that sticks out to you as most helpful?
2: Long, I think, cli- I mean, client or stakeholder management, I mean, dealing with happy clients, frustrated clients, dealing with so many, I mean, we have hundreds of customers and each customer has maybe dozens of stakeholders or more. It's not all that different than kind of the the rolodex of people that you interact with, either in consulting or in banking, where everything's. So you're you, you have to be comfortable in tricky situations, comfortable talking to people who know a lot more about their business than than you do, and still having them feel like the conversation was valuable and that you are a a trusted advisor and a trusted vendor.
3: Yeah, I would agree with that. I think what. Obviously, coming from investment banking, just being comfortable around financial statements, projections, analysis has been just incredibly helpful for just on the financial side of the business. But beyond that, I do think that project management work, you know, which is what you end up doing quite a lot in in consulting and investment banking, you know, managing teams internally and external stakeholders through various steps and various milestones in order to achieve the resolution, whether it's the transaction or the launch of an intranet, I think that uh, I do re- rely on that experience quite a lot. And that, you know, some of the migrations or some of the implementations can take, you know, be quite complex. And so having that, that experience to leverage, knowing that we've got the team in place, got the milestones defined, we know what we need to do and just a matter of executing has been helpful for Xero.
0: What kind of advice did you get from investors or peers for how to handle your first year in the business once you acquired it? I
2: think the most common maybe piece of advice that you hear a lot of is, you know, the first year is do no harm. You know, you're, you're there to learn, you're there to understand how things work today before you start making changes. And I think it's not bad advice, but you, you very quickly, I mean, a year is a long time to wait to have ideas about how you, or you know, start executing on things that you want to be doing to you know, move the business in the direction that you want to be moving with. I think the better analogy that one of our investors shared with us was like docking with the space station. You know, you want to make sure you're moving at a certain speed. The space station is moving at a certain speed. You got to get those relative speeds right and then dock and have a good lock. and, And then you're both moving in the same direction before you start changing the direction of either the space station or your little ship. And I think that is actually was very good advice. Not so much that it takes a year or takes six months. You know, it's probably different for everyone, for different for every business. But making sure that you have that you've docked with mothership before you try and change the direction of either, I think, is important.
3: Talking to customers is, is, and talking to customers and talking to prospects uh, was, was also one of the advices that came out. And You, see, you can never spend too much time talking to either customers or, or prospects. We just learn an enormous amount about how people use our product, what pain points they have, what, what they're getting out of the, the, the platform, what they like, what they don't like. And we certainly spend a lot of time jumping in on, on customer calls, whether it's their implementation, whether they're having a renewal conversation. Or the you know anyone who's in the in the sales pipeline as well at different stages, and doing so there's there's a limit to what you can you can how much you can talk to customers prior to stepping into the role just for confidentiality reasons and so forth and so really doubling down once once you do have all access is just a great way to to learn the business
0: within the first year running Xero is there any particular challenge or time period that was most difficult or you feel like had the highest and steepest learning curve?
2: I immediately know what I think is our shared answer, but yeah, I mean the first few weeks, primarily Michael should talk about it, of getting the financial engine of the company back up and running was probably the biggest challenge we faced in the first year.
3: Yeah, we... Just by various circumstances, we we walked into Xero with with no finance function whatsoever. And so 30 odd employees, a couple hundred customers, invoices to send out, bills to pay, and really all knowledge of all systems and processes were all outside in through documents that we had reviewed prior to transactions. So, yeah, setting up... A finance function from scratch was incredibly challenging and very very steep learning curve and it took about three or four weeks for us to start sending out the first invoices so certain customers were already renewing or were approaching renewing and wouldn't necessarily have received their next year license subscription invoice ended up being me sending them through our joint gmail i mean it was a full-time job that i was doing whilst trying to do other things in the business
0: so, you, you said it took three to four weeks to figure out. What did you end up doing?
3: Well, so got a, a new part time CFO that got parachuted in and who helped really do the triage and to understand the different systems and so forth. And I think one of the issues that we had to set up, and I think this was poor advice that we had received or poor guidance that we had received from someone private, we set up a new QuickBooks instance from scratch. And so there was a whole data migration that had to happen and mapping the different products and services that were being sold into this new QuickBooks entity. And we use uh, as our revenue recognition system, SAS Optics, which is now called, called Maxio. But that migration broke the connectivity with Maxio. And so there was no link between those two systems anymore. And it really took... It took actually a, a desperate message from me to the folks at Maxio to the leadership there to, to ask for their help for us to get up and running again. And once that had been resolved, then we were able to issue invoices based on the subscription that was determined by Maxio. So it took a little while for us to get that going.
0: And what about the, maybe the second six months? So the back half of the first year, anything within that period stand out to you?
2: Yeah, I think one shift that is kind of was underway and is still underway at Xero is that the number of enterprise customers, you know, true Fortune 500, Fortune 1000 organizations that we work with has skyrocketed from, you know, if you were to go back five years in Xero's existence to you know practically none, maybe one or two, to you. now it's, you know, our, our regular course of businesses is selling to and serving those size organizations. And implementations of our product for organizations of that size are a completely different flavor in terms of the skills. We need to provide the resources that those organizations bring to a project like this compared to, you know, what Xero maybe grew up on as as our bread and butter. And so, you know, I would say definitely in that sort of second six to 12-month timeframe, we realized how many of those implementations we had live and and the number of resources we had devoted to them and how they could stall or how they could be successful in terms of, you know, what we needed to do to bring them closer to launch and closer to getting value out of the platform. And I think we, we took a heavy role, both Michael and I in helping really move those forward. And again, that's you know where some of that consulting and, and investment banking experience comes back into play in terms of just, we could interact with C-suite executives at Fortune, you know, 1,000 companies. We could, we understood how to project manage highly complex projects with multiple work streams of multiple different stakeholders and how to keep things moving forward. And so you know, that became a big effort that we were working on and a big challenge that we didn't necessarily think that much about when we were doing the transaction. Where you just think, oh, you make the sale, you have an implementation team, they implement the customer, what else is there to understand? But obviously when you have you know, 30, 40 customers in implementation, at any given time. And, you know, there's a, there's a lot to wrap your minds. There's a lot to go wrong, a lot to go right, and help keep those on track. Was it. And we ended up revamping our implementation process. We ended up hiring a couple of new folks onto the implementation team to help support. And we continue to be heavily focused on how do we run really tight, really successful implementations today because it's time to value on the platform and the success of your implementation, the speed of your implementation. Are very 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 good predictors of your long term success with Xero. If you can you can implement quickly, you can get value out of the platform quickly. You're very likely to continue growing and getting more value out of the platform over time. And the vice versa is also true. If if you have trouble getting off the ground, it's not a great start to, to our relationship, and it it tends to you know be very difficult then to get it back on track.
0: Implementation for enterprise customers is going to definitely a big task that you don't want to develop a bad process for how did how did you go about figuring out what is the best process for their investors you could reach out to or peers like what was your what was your process for kind of learning what an ideal implementation looks like
3: we started joining a few uh, obviously right at the get go and I think you know both Adam and I we kind of alarm bells went off and we quickly understood that this wasn't going to be sufficient for for what we did and so really did a, uh, you know, sort of a, a teardown of everything of the process from beginning to end. And we started off with a big workshop where we just wanted to get brainstormed as many ideas and perspective as possible from the sales folks, from the product team, from client success, from current implementation managers, and try and understand what is their perspective on, on what works, what doesn't work. And over time, we developed essentially a breakdown of step-by-step, each task that needs to be accomplished in order for our platform to be successfully installed for any size customer. The the larger the customer, the more complexity comes around site architecture, content integrations, but at its core, the implementation really follows a similar blueprint for all customers. And so once we had identified that full journey and all the tasks and all the requirements that need to be accomplished, we created a collaborative project management document that we share with customers so that customers can see their progress through these tasks and helps us have better visibility on, on how the customers are moving forward. And that helped pretty dramatically reduce the launch time of customers. That was a metric that wasn't necessarily tracked by the company prior. So went into did some analysis to understand how long it usually takes set up this new process and now we've been measuring the the time to launch since then and we've had a reduction of about uh, i think 35 or 40 percent in number of weeks and so that's been that's been incredibly helpful because you know as adam was saying you know the relationship with the customer that very delicate moment when they're no longer a prospect, they become a customer. That is really where we have to spend most of our time providing value and and, and making sure that they feel well taken care. That the customer feels well taken care of, with us, that they uh, understand and see start seeing the value of our product. And so, you know, just really educating ourselves around client success in general. You know, reading a couple books, having connecting with a few advisors from our network has was very helpful for us to just very quickly understand the, the customer journey the pressure points, the friction areas, and how to ultimately iron those out to retain the customer in the long run as much as possible. And really thinking about client success is you know, really the first touch point from the sales side as well. And understanding what they're looking for, what why did they come, why did they identify the need for the for a solution like ours, and making sure that that first touch point where they start explaining this to us is already built into our implementation plan so that when they are finally a customer, we are leveraging the entire knowledge of our relationship up to date and then obviously building from there and and delivering the product and implementing it successfully. It's kind of the long-winded answer about, you know, how we view, you know, the customer journey as being a a key component and where we spent a lot of time last year.
2: I think there were two other small things I remember that, you know either we got lucky with the timing or we or we did well probably more luck than anything else but one was we were implementing a customer success platform for Xero, one that we use internally now and going through implementation with that vendor and we learned a lot that we borrowed from them as we rebuilt our implementation process so that was very helpful and the other thing that was very helpful was we got lucky in a customer of ours had hired an implementation manager on their end for implementing our product at their organization. And he was looking for new roles, new opportunities. And so we actually had hired him as a new implementation manager at Xero right about as we were revamping the implementation process. So we had just been a customer, implemented our product, was joining Sarah with that knowledge and we were in the middle of revamping the process to something we thought would be better. And he immediately started providing Feedback and guidance on, yeah, you know, this, this is an improvement or this is not an improvement. And I think those two things really did help get the, the process improved quite a bit in the early days.
0: How long did that end-to-end process take where you realized in customer calls that, oh, this isn't, it's, this isn't an ideal way to implement versus now the new implementation person's been hired and there's a better system in place now? How long do you think that took? about four
3: months we so we started in first of july i think by august we were already i mean i think even before that adam and i we had identified it and by in august we restarted the effort with the team and and getting getting their ideas and we unveiled the process on first of january last year and the next sale was going to go through that the new process and we wanted to, you know, so a bit of change management as well. So, you know, really making sure that we would have a few follow ons discussions, identifying what, you know, so that the sales team understood it well for internally, we understood it on the client success side, we, we understood it well. And then encouraging the sales team as well to follow through on the implementations of their new customers so that they can have a first 10 experience on what it's all about. So. It took about four months for yeah, for four and a half months or so to to develop it, and then it was a change manager. and we still tweak it every now and then and and find areas of improvement all the time. So we see it more as a journey as opposed to a final product.
0: Yeah, from that process, you mentioned change management. What what lessons on change management did you learn from that experience?
3: Probably looking back I would probably want to do it even faster I would say I think we were trying to finesse it too much and I think maybe starting smaller and executing faster and doing would have probably I don't think the product would have been uh, would probably would have just evolved faster and been you know more tested or qu- quicker and I think there are definitely a couple of implementations that. Towards the end of, of our first year, that I felt were already not necessarily on the on the best track and would benefit from a revamp plan, but we didn't really have that revamp plan ready yet. So, really, yes, starting s- smaller and then more more tactically deploying our our new idea. I think that's what I would do differently.
0: Now that you're in the the second year of your business, in what ways do you feel like your mindset has changed from that? first six-month period or even the year to today?
2: I think in that first six months or even in the first year, your biggest concern is you missed something or you there's something you don't know that is waiting for you around the corner to surprise you. And I think now that isn't our biggest concern. And so because of that, it allows us to, to move faster, to be more confident in the decisions that we're making. Yeah. So, you know, I think I think that's the biggest shift from, from year one to year two is it does take a year to sort of, you know, fully understand what it is, well, you know, what the business is. And then once you have that, it's it's a lot easier to strategize about where you want to take the business next.
3: Yeah. Really shifting from what's going on day to day. Oh my God, did you see this? To a uh, customer opened this case just got this email to you know, more confidently delegating and and trusting the teams trusting the processes trusting trusting that what the work that we had put in initially really keeping an eye on things and recalibrating certain things are now bearing fruit and and that uh, you know we can shift from not what is the biggest fire of the day to you know what what are the milestones that we want to achieve you know for this month quarter and start thinking on a, on a more longer term basis and and I think yeah just Buying the company and investing and incredibly cautious and, you know, oh, c- can we spend this much money and, and, and so forth. But now we're just at a scale where we have to move faster, hire faster. So shifting our time to building not just the uh, ARR, but building the team that has to go with it and trying to to, to support everyone uh, across business too. And that then needs to coordinate amongst larger teams is F- F- where, where our added value is, is most right now. I think one of the
2: mantras that stuck with us, one of the sort of platitudes from the search space that you've, you've heard probably before is, you know, you spend that first year, the business is running you, and at some point you're running the business, and then at some point you're truly leading the business. And I think that first piece for sure, <laughs> the the business runs you, you know, you're, like I said, you're responding to fires, you're in a highly reactive state. At some point, you get your handle of it, and you can actually run the business, but still you're you're two in the weeds you're you're a problem solver, you're trying to solve all the problems out there and then at some point, you evolve to I don't think we're fully there yet, but we're somewhere along in this journey of I don't need to do everything, I don't need to solve everything. I need to build a process and a team and equip them with the right resources to solve everything. That's one of those pieces of advice that definitely felt like it was true and wasn't uh, wasn't misleading. <laughs>
0: So, if you're now transitioning from managing the business or running the business to something more akin to leading, what are the top three priorities for you within that shift now? Like, what what has changed on like kind of like your top of mind ideas going forward? One of the uh, folks within our investor group had actually pointed, I think, quite well about like what it means to lead.
3: It's really about being in the marketplace, and so it's about being in the marketplace of people and talents with clients of course but also partnerships vendors and really being a little bit looking at the business as a whole and thinking about it what else is out there that can help support growth and how can how can Xero partner with with the right people vendors clients in order to move that forward and so yeah i think right now things definitely on a people side of things making sure that we're you know growing growing the teams got to some an aggressive hiring plan that we want to, to execute on quite early. And at this point, I think we also need an, an internal HR function and recruitment that can help support that as well. So right now, I'd say my biggest focus is really on the people side, just to, to support, support the growth.
0: You mentioned a, a hiring plan, which you know, is part of a budget and kind of a broader planning process. What's your philosophy for putting together... Budgets and hiring plans and planning broadly for the following year or several years?
3: Yeah, so it really starts for us. And, you know, we do have to thank our board who has been incredibly helpful in helping us put together our, our, our plans. But it really starts, you know, at the, the top of the funnel. Okay, so how many sales folks do you have? What are their quotas? What do we think is, is their attainment of it? Okay, so what is ARR that we can confidently target for the business? Okay, let's haircut that, just from a budgeting standpoint. Then from there, it's really about modeling out and thinking about where what's the capacity utilization across the business. You know how many how many implementation managers do you need? How many how many technical support do you need? Who generates the most tickets at various life cycles within their journey? And that kind build out you know the client success requirements and then start thinking about the number of cases or tickets or features that are generally required at any point in the business. And then that flows into the development budget. And so, yeah, sort of each department has to manage its growth in line with the growth that we are expecting from a top line. And we go through every single line of expense that we had in 2022 and determine whether or not it should be in the budget for 2023. So we're thinking about it from a zero-based budgeting perspective to ensure that we're managing the business from the most effectively possible from a capital perspective.
0: For those costs that you're evaluating whether they should remain in the budget for, for next year, how do you decide edge cases? Like I, I could see things that are critical for the business that you need to keep in there, some that are you know very unnecessary or one time that are pretty easy to exclude, but what do you do with expenses that are kind of in that middle ground where they're somewhat useful, but not necessarily across the team, but for those kind of middle ground expenses, what do you what do you do? How do you think through their inclusion?
3: It really depends on the amount. Ultimately, I mean, if it's a, if it's something that's you know not generating that much v- value, but it's thousand dollars a year, it's probably not. And if someone finds it useful, that's that's probably good enough. But on average, I would say we're more keen on just cutting if it's not useful. Then then we should we should just not keep it. I think otherwise you just end up with bloated expenses of a lot of things that are semi useful as opposed to having things that are very useful.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. When Fede was mentioning you guys on the I don't know, phone call I had with him, he said you made it a really great budget. What made it great? Like what part of the budget do you feel like garnered that kind of praise from Fede? He's, he's got a high bar. So I'd be, be curious what you guys did.
3: What I've tried to do in creating the plan is that it's very clear and there's a, a lot of schedules, a lot of a lot of analysis, and that all of these analysis tie together to ultimately what is the is the output, which is, you know, three statements projected for the year, but that everything is coherently built. From the bottom up, I mean, you know, we we built this one completely from scratch, you know, just a blank Excel, cell A1 and start building it out and start thinking about what, what the biggest expenses are, what the biggest drivers of the business are. And, and over time it's evolved, obviously, but I would imagine that uh, Fede was impressed by the comprehensiveness, I guess, of the, uh, of the model that there's really no stone left unturned.
0: Yeah, it certainly seems like you tried to make sure you covered every every minor detail for, for what would affect the business. So what about the hiring plan? How do you think through which positions you would need? Does it kind of go back to the budget where you, you talked about the different factors and what your sales team can create and how that kind of filters down and then just headcount? Who do you need for how many folks do you need at each team and whatnot?
3: Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, starting about the from, uh, sales budgets, like how much do we think we can achieve? or What is a reasonable amount of growth that we think that we can achieve given where we are in the business? What is the quota that we each salesperson has? And are we going to achieve it with the current team? No? Okay, so we need another sales manager with X amount of quota in order to, to reach that target. That then flows then to how we think about implementation managers and sort of the waterfall Each implementation manager, we think, you know, can have a maybe 10 to 12 maximum amount of implementations at any point in time. Our implementations are of a certain length, so we can start seeing when we will need more capacity in order to cater for the new business that's coming in. That determines that, okay, we need a new implementation manager, most likely somewhere middle of the year or, or not. And then just the volume of business, so new customers coming in, generate more cases and tickets than older customers so as a result it's going to be an influx of cases each technical support engineer can manage x amount of cases per day or per month which results then in you know an assessment that okay there's too many cases or we we expect too many cases for the current resources so adding the resources that that we need at the right time in order to make sure that there's no there's no burnout or everyone that the volume is is adequate And then same thing then for the account managers, right? So each CSM can manage either X number, X million of ARR or number of customers, depending on the segment. So as these segments are growing or with net of uh, expected churn, how many client success managers do you need? How many account managers do you need? And then that triggers in the hiring plan for, for those positions. And then... On the development side, it's maybe a little bit less scientific around the, the number of user story points that are produced, but there's some math around the how much money we want to spend on the infrastructure side of things, or on the development side of things, or or mobile versus QA, and this little bit maybe more of an art than a science from that perspective, but it ultimately does follow a little bit of a linear trajectory with the business and what we should expect to deliver in terms of development for current customers. So that's in a nutshell how we kind of developed our our hiring
0: plan for a year. I bet your investment banking and consulting experiences both gave you a lot of experience working with budgets and seeing that of perhaps some you built yourself and others you, you got to see. What are some common Errors or emissions you've you've seen in budgets that you've tried to avoid.
3: So I think the I think maybe it's a bit of a nuance about specifically Xero and the company and and being a software company. It's really about thinking about cash revenue versus gap revenue, and that's sort of how ARR flows in into the equation. Because I think the it is by the nature of how a subscription model works. Customers pay upfront. And so you then recognize the revenue over the length of the contract. And that does create a very, very unique cash flow model, right? Because you're, you're getting a lot of cash up front that needs to be serviced over X number of, of months or even years in certain cases. And so drilling down and thinking about the deferred revenue and how to adjust that in order to get to cash revenue was probably the... The mistake that we may have made had I just taken, you know, investment banking background, just sort of started modeling out what, what it would look like, but bringing it down to our business and looking at cash revenue, cash EBITDA, and what that means was the best route for us. I don't know if that quite answers your question. It's, it's a common mistake, but it was certainly a mistake that we would have made at Xero.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. You've mentioned taking advice from your investors or or board in the past. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on getting advice. How do you? figure out who you should listen to or what type of advice is valuable for you and kind of filter through all the advice I'm sure you get from lots of different folks in your, in your network. One
2: of the great things about the search models or communities is there's no shortage of people who are willing to help you and people who are willing to give you advice. And how you find the advice givers that you trust who are saying things that you feel are relevant for your business it's a little bit just trial and error, making sure that you're having a lot of conversations, asking people their opinions, their ideas. I think certain people would say things and Michael and I would both feel like, yes, they're on our wavelength. We're on the same frequency. We need them to be advisors of ours through this journey. And others would say things, and there was something inherently wrong with the advice, but it didn't resonate with either Michael or it didn't resonate with our business. I think one of the maybe challenges of the search community is, there's a little bit of a rumor mill or a a flywheel where searchers and CEOs give information to their investors and advisors and the ones that have good outcomes, all of a sudden that information becomes advice to then give back to other searchers and CEOs. And and it's kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy where sometimes certain... Certain pieces of advice that have become so easy to repeat and repeated don't actually end up being the best advice for your particular situation, for your particular business. And I think you need folks on your side who can who understand the business really well. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, that became obvious to us who those people were and were not. The more conversations we would have, the more advice we've gotten. So I think, you know, the way to do it is just have as many conversations with smart people that you think you can trust as possible and over time. The ones that are really aligned and and understand your business and whose advice you feel is really valuable will emerge
0: as part of kind of figuring out who to ask advice from. How does industry come into it? I imagine there are some questions that you might have that aren't necessarily very industry specific, and then some that are very much so. How does industry factor into the types of folks you reach out to for advice?
2: I think one of the piece of advice we got when we were putting together our board was it would be helpful to have someone who knows your industry really well, someone who knows your business model really well, someone who can play more of a a CEO coach or who has been in in, in your shoes operating before. I think those were the three kind of personas that came up. Maybe I'm forgetting one, but the...
3: One capital allocator is... Uh, I can, uh, yeah,
2: yeah, someone who understands capital allocation really well. And I think for us, I mean, we're, we're a horizontal software solution. So industry was maybe less relevant than... But I, I think someone who understands horizontal software, someone who understands the SaaS business model, someone who could be a coach and a guru for Michael and I, and then someone who understands capital allocation. I think that was pretty good advice in terms of thinking through the different types of experts you or advisors you want near you. And I don't think any one is more important than the other. Maybe it is for others, but we are a horizontal software solution where industry maybe isn't the most important. Maybe if you're a, I don't know, like a healthcare RCM software solution, maybe you know understanding industry and Medicare and that becomes more and more important. But for us, there's really not a ton of industry trends that you need to be an expert on to run our business well.
0: Have you found value in going to like industry conferences or getting to know folks through other industry like trade publications or whatnot and just trying to meet folks that way? I'm, I enjoy getting to know people in media and data and I've tried to find kind of advisors or just people who aren't doing interesting things in, in both areas, but it's still hard as an outsider to know where truly to look or it may on the surface look like a good place to look or this type of role may look like they're very helpful but turns out there's a totally different area to actually start looking in how do you kind of get your get familiar with the industry and and know where where advice can be found i think for the most part i haven't found that
2: you know there's groups or communities or places where you can find that at you know easily at scale. I think it, it really comes down to individuals. you have to find the right people. Where you find those people is sort of irrelevant, but you need to find people. And I think the one where we have found people that have worked well for us through expert networks that some of our investors subscribe to, those ended up being really helpful resources. Through LinkedIn, I mean, just find, you know, following a bunch of talking heads on LinkedIn who are giving relevant advice in your industry. And that leads you to three more and leads you to three more. And then LinkedIn just becomes like the steady flow of interesting content that's helpful for informing, you know, whatever you're trying to learn more about. And then the search community, obviously, going to conferences and events hosted by our investors and, and their networks and meeting others who are at various stages along the way. I think the most helpful advice we've gotten are are from the first and third categories I just said. so the first was expert networks that our investors subscribe to as a paid service that we have been able to find really smart people through. And then former operators who are further along in the journey, whether they're still operating or sold or not, who are in the search community and now have, you know, given us a lot of great advice in terms of lessons they learned along the way passing those on to us.
0: What do you feel like you're most excited by today? Like of the, of the things you're looking forward to the most in 2023 and beyond, like what, what excites you the most about running Xero?
2: I mean, I think compared to, you know, where I was, and I think Michael feels similarly, but you know, as a consultant, you wake up, you do what you're told to do, right? You know, you have a client meeting coming up next week, you have to put together a debt for, you know, whatever it might be. You wake up in the morning and you just think, okay, what do I have to get done? And you just work through your list and, and, and that's that, and, you know, versus waking up as a business owner or a leader with ownership in a business and you do what you think will create the most value for the business that day um, or that week or that month or that year. That is a very exciting feeling to wake up to. I mean, I used to go to bed Sunday nights very uh, anxious about the start of the week on Monday as a consultant. And I go to bed Sunday night here, and I can't wait to wake up Monday and get in front of clients and get in front of prospective customers, get in front of our team, and talk about how we're going to, you know, keep improving, etc., and keep building, keep growing. For me, that that feeling of ownership of real. Ability to set your own priorities and set the priorities for the business, I think, is the most exciting
3: aspect of it. 100%. I mean, being able, I mean, you know, don't can't do whatever we want, but we certainly do have quite a bit of freedom on a day to day basis to influence the company and in a way we think will have you have the best value. And, and having the freedom to really just being able, Adam and I, to make decisions on the direction to go is, is incredibly fulfilling to do on, on a day to day basis. But to be honest, like, you know, we come out of a good year for Xero. We did a lot of work, putting in a lot of good processes, really great team members that, that have joined this year. and Our f- overall financial performance was very robust in 2022. And so really part of it is about, I'm just really excited about, you know, doubling down on all the great things that we have established last year. I think, you know, as we were talking about the first six months, you know, early part of 2022 was really still figuring a lot of things out, still solving a lot of problems. and doing a lot of thinking and and trying to calibrate the business in a certain way but in a lot of ways we do feel that we're somewhat calibrated enough at, at this point that it's really about executing on what we've already done and reaping the benefits so i think that's very exciting just given the year that we just had
0: yeah i think that is exciting moving to closing questions what strongly held belief have you changed your mind on the most
3: i think for me it was really about quite academic i do like to overstudy things prior to making a decision. And, you know, when Adam, you know, reached out and suggested that we do the search fund, he sent me this the Stanford guide. I mean, I obviously rent all 80 pages of it to really make sure that I really understood what I was getting myself into. And I think over time I've become more fail fast and something that I've learned as well, just working with Adam is making faster and quicker decisions and not necessarily overanalyzing. Because ultimately, it's all a venture, and you can never know the outcome with certainty. So, don't have to overanalyze and overthink about the outcomes, and just go for it. So, that's probably something that I, that I've changed quite significantly. And and I try actually try now coach other team members that I see falling into the same trap that that I fail myself extracted from.
0: Is that just a matter of like reducing the threshold of information you need before making a decision? Like, okay, I know like this is probably 60% the right answer. So just do it and see how it goes.
3: Yeah. And and I think the difficulty with that is that it's, I guess I never knew what a hundred percent knowledge looked like. So it continuously research and and think and and, and analyze. And I think it's just determining that I am at that 60 or 80% mark that I know, okay, I'm good enough in my mind with the decision that I want to take anyway. And anything beyond that is just going to be, I'm trying to continuously affirm and confirm a belief that I already have and just letting go of, of that pattern.
0: I like that that's a good one. Adam, what's yours?
3: Maybe hard to
2: put into words, but I think, you know, especially when I was in college and later in life, and business school, you know, you you fall into the trap of just follow this well trodden path, especially, I mean, both Michael and I are pretty risk adverse entrepreneurs, which I know is a, Maybe a little bit of a counterintuitive, or I don't know. But we, you know, the reason we ended up in the search space is because, from all entrepreneurial ventures out there, it actually has the right risk profile for folks like us. And and I think maybe the belief that you have to be a a real risk taker to be an entrepreneur or to be a successful entrepreneur is one that I think should be abandoned. There are plenty of paths out there where you can, you know, have a risk profile similar to Michael or I, folks who came from very well-trodden paths, consulting banking, whatever it might be. But this entrepreneurial model actually makes a lot of sense. And you don't need to accept a 5 10% chance of success to be in this model. You can, the data shows that you can do it more successfully than, or just as successfully as, as other traditional careers. So to me, that would be the one to abandon, you know, that you have to be A risk taker to be an entrepreneur i think there are models out there for risk averse entrepreneurs
0: yeah i totally agree with that one i think a lot of entrepreneurs tend to lean the opposite way and say that they're they're trying to avoid risk or at least reduce risk as much as possible by building teams or redundant systems or diverse revenue bases that i feel like there's a lot of ceos who are actually fairly risk averse from what it seems other are there any entrepreneurs or CEOs that you you study and admire the most in terms of their risk tolerance or the way that they strengthen their company?
3: I mean, I've always really admired, you know, Charlie Munger and, and Warren Buffett, and I think they have their formula and they've had it for decades and they for as long as it, you know, a company fulfills their their mantra of simple, you know, good economics and so forth a good company. And, and I think that that simplicity of, of how they coin, th- they've coined their investment decision, I think is something that I've always tried to internalize as much as possible.
2: Yeah. To
3: plug another podcast, there's a uh,
2: Frank Slootman who was CEO of, I think he's now CEO of Snowflake, but he came from ServiceNow and a couple other organizations as well. He's got a podcast with Invest Like the Best. And I try to follow a lot of what he said. He has a couple books as well I find his advice is really, really helpful for managing teams, managing change, and just a, just a smart guy. So that's another one
0: I throw out. there. Nice. That, that sounds familiar. I I feel like I may have listened to it, but I obviously need to re-listen. Re- I'll go dig that one up. What's the best business you've come across?
3: When I was in investment banking, I worked with this company. I not necessarily say the name of It's you know, in the distribution space. And it was incredibly resilient they sold a consumable product in an incredibly resilient end market and so hardly had a dip in sales during the 08 2009 crisis a family owned family run and it is the consumable nature made it a very very sticky recurring revenue business and i had you know the opportunity to, to work very closely with, with the founders and the team there during, during a, a transaction i just was Always looked up to how they were managing their business, and and the company itself was very impressive. I think they've tripled in size since uh, I interacted with them, and they've they've done incredibly well. I like businesses related to sort of like globalization of
2: talent. There's two really that, that come to mind that we have used a lot or are using. One is Upwork, which you know a lot of folks know and use, which just gives you access to you know massive rolodex of freelancers across the globe who have Sometimes really specific skills, sometimes really general skills. We've met great people on that platform. And then another is when we use now called multiplier. It's similar to some other centers in the space like Deal with two E's that let you, rather than having to set up an entity in a country to hire folks in that country compliantly, they have entities in all these countries, and you basically you know pay them a small fee to hire through them, so you can employ employees. Compliantly in those countries without having to go through the ordeal of setting up an entity and filing taxes and, and so on and so on. And so both of those have, have given us access at Xero, but also at, at our search fund to have you know, a global network of resources that we wouldn't have been able to leverage otherwise. So I think, um, yeah, you know, just, just really valuable in the, in the value that they provide. And you're, you're more than happy to pay a small fee to take advantage of that.
0: Yeah, that's definitely a convenience worth paying for. Thank you both so much for coming on the podcast and sharing a little bit about your business. And it's fun to hear how the you know, first two years go for a CEO. They tend to be a bit of a roller coaster in some ways. So it's fun to hear your perspective on how yours went.
2: Thanks for having us. And if,
0: uh,
3: if you ever need an internet software, or an employee engagement portal, you know where to find us. Thank you very much, Alex.
0: Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation today. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Live Oak Bank, Hood & Strong, Ravix Group, Overly Risk Strategies, and Oakborne Advisors for their support. For full episode transcripts and more information, please visit our website at alexbridgman.com slash podcast.